welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Erin Hesse, one of your hosts on this podcast, and today you're going to be hearing from two of our longtime members, Bill and Diane Taylor, who celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary with us on Sunday, June 17th. They were able to share stories with the congregation about how God has worked in their lives, and a lot of the stories were incredibly encouraging and were meant to help build up the congregation. So here are some more stories that they weren't able to share during services. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome today. I am with Bill and Diane Taylor, who have been married only 49 years because their anniversary is tomorrow. Their 50th, you're gonna hear from them on Sunday in our services, and uh, which will you, have, you will have already heard when you listen to this podcast. So, um, welcome, Bill and Diane. Thank, Thank you. you. And um, as we uh, we got put together the service, you had like eight or nine stories from your life that were all very meaningful in the development of your faith. But as things go with Sunday morning timing and stuff, we had to cut it down. And so, some of the ones you had you cut down were actually pretty um, interesting, exciting ones. So, and a couple of the ones you were able to include, you're not saying that much about. So. Um, so anyway, um, why don't you give people just quickly the backstory in case they don't hear the Sunday morning. Like, just you, you came to Christ in college. Is that right, Bill? Yes, I came to Christ at Duke University when I was a junior. But I thought I became a Christian in high school. So that added a bit of confusion to the whole process. Yeah. And you were a, were you a math major? I was a mathematics major, physics minor. Okay. And then you, in, you, in your career path was... Um, I came, I graduated from Duke, we moved here for me to go to graduate school, and then during the second semester of my one and only year of graduate school, uh, the Lord drained my delight in mathematics right out of me, like taking the oil out of an oil pan of the car, and then I was left with math as this extremely hard but not fun, and so I walked away. Uh, and so that was the end of, perhaps you might say, the Lord said, Bill, you shall not have any other gods before me, not even mathematics. Um, some people think, well, the Lord could have used your mathematics, and to which I said, well, he did. He used it as a burnt offering. <laughs> <laughs> but right. he, he could have. He just apparently didn't in your case. Right. He, he has, has plenty, plenty of, of mathematicians, mathematicians yeah. without me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and Diane, how about you? Uh, I was a freshman in... James Madison in Virginia, and I left my sheltered life to come there, and it was so different for me that I didn't know what was the meaning of life. I just just was seeking that and um, got laughed at a lot by my roommates and stuff like that. So it was hard, but then I knew there was a God, and I turned to him, and he helped me know that he would give me meaning in my life. And so it was wonderful to start off in my freshman year knowing the Lord and being able to walk with Him. And what are your college years, like 61 to 64? Like, what were you? 64 to 68 for me. Okay. And 62 to 66 for me. Okay. And, yeah. Okay, and so you met in college? No, we, well, the funny story is we dated on and off for 17 years before we were married when I was age 21. Okay. In that, my mother would drop me off at her house so that my mother and her mother could go three houses up to the Methodist Church for a ladies' Bible study. When I was four, she was six, and her sister was 10. And so that's how we met. We played in the sandbox together, and he threw sand at me. I remember it still. In self-defense. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it was. That's what they all say. Though. Okay, so then you married after in, after undergrad. After I graduated. It's okay. So I graduated. We, I was a bachelor for two weeks. We married. We dragged a U-Haul trailer up here, and then we were here. Okay. So one of the stories that got taken out of the Sunday morning thing was actually you getting drafted, and your convictions about violence in the Christian faith and coming to a position of conscientious objection and all of that. So you were, it sounded like from the email I read from you that you guys had already been married. Is that right? Yes. Um, my father had been in the U.S. Navy in World War II. Um, 
And so my initial ambition was to be a naval officer, and so I hoped to go to the Naval Academy. So we actually went to Washington, D.C. and talked to the two U.S. Senators and the U.S. Representative for, our, for Virginia in our district, um, and even chatted with an admiral uh, when I was in like after seventh grade. Mm -hmm. But then in eighth grade, all of a sudden, I went nearsighted, and there went the Naval Academy. Mm -hmm. and so you could say, Jesus said, no, you're not going to the Naval Academy because I'm striking you down vision-wise. Okay. Uh, but I still believe, basically, you know, my country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, and the United States and the, the flag and the cross are all wrapped together. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you're from Virginia. And I'm also from Virginia, which is far more patriotic in that sense than Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, um, so... When I began reading the Bible, which is when I consider I actually became a Christian, in my junior year, I, to put it in shorthand, I saw Jesus dying for me, but not just going out and killing all the Vietnamese. Uh, and so that created a um, struggle in my own mind. Do I go along with what the country's doing? Do I object? Do I object to the point of going to prison for it? Uh, do I think I'm just a coward? Do I think I have principles? And, and working through all of that, um, two men I respected greatly was my college roommate, Greg, and then a, a mutual friend of ours who was a year older and an engineering student. They were willing to go into the military. The older one did as a medic. Uh, my college roommate was rejected from the military for being too skinny. <laughs> I mean, he was a rail. <laughs> oh, man. So he, you know, but they were willing to go in as medics, but I wasn't. And so I thought, how can I take the hard, strong position if they're not? If and you felt, you still felt like going in as a medic was still participating in the overall military endeavor. Yes, I, I, um. You were helping the country kill the enemies. Yeah, the, and so the that job still... description of the medics is to get the fighting machine going again, as opposed to being um, Florence Nightingale. Okay. And so that's where I landed. Um, my local draft board in rural Virginia had never seen a conscious objector uh, who wasn't a black Jehovah's Witness, and that did not go over very well <laughs> in my racist hometown. <laughs> uh, oh, that's kind of funny. So I mean, it's a tragedy, but it's kind of funny. It is funny later, and yeah. sad. And, uh, there is one actually truly funny point. Uh, it came to by... February 23rd of 1971, so this has been going on for nearly three years after I graduated, um, I did have to actually refuse induction at the Milwaukee Induction Station. Okay, so let's get this in order. Okay, so you're in college. You graduated from college? I graduated in June of 68. Then you got a draft notice. And I've got actually got several draft notices, but all of them except the last one, I could write back to the selective service system in my home area and say, you're supposed to do this, and you didn't, So, but I'm still opposed to warfare, and would you start all over? And, and they did, because they had to do it right. Uh, but eventually, I ran out of all of that. Uh, so I was becoming a courthouse lawyer, you might say. Um, so uh, at the induction center, the, one of the things they have you fill out is a question questionnaire, and one question is, is there any reason why you should not be inducted into the military today. And so I wrote for the billionth time, uh, I am consciously opposed by virtue of religious training and belief to participation in warfare. So when the military people saw that, they pulled me away from all the other inductees for fear that I would uh, infect them, which I had no desire to do that because I was not uh, the red mayor to be uh, at all. I was a conservative person. Uh, and so by the middle of the day, I asked the uh, captain of the military folks, um, may I go over to the FBI office and turn myself in? And they said, yes, you can, because you're not under our jurisdiction yet. And so I did. And so that's when the Lord's sense of humor showed up. Uh, the FBI agent, as they all do, had his last name on a golden little pin on his little coat or shirt, whatever it was. And his last name was, as you might guess, Christian. 
And I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> um, and so they fingerprinted me and mugshot me. And then there was something else they needed to do. But that gentleman that did that was at a funeral. So they said, would you just go home and come back tomorrow and we'll finish your processing. So did this, okay, so did they, so this is in Milwaukee, this is a different this place. This is in Milwaukee where I was in, so they still almost didn't, inducted. They still didn't think that you claiming to be a conscientious objector was credible? The Selective Service System local board back in Virginia did not recognize me as a conscientious objector. But then in Milwaukee, I was consciously objecting, and unlike Nazi Germany, they did not just shoot me, which is nice. So I'm very grateful for this country in that <laughs> regard. Very grateful. Uh, so soon afterwards, then I had a hearing with the Wisconsin State Appeal Board as opposed to the Virginia State Appeal Board. And so those gentlemen interviewed me, and they decided I was a conscious objector, and so they put me in a new category, which was, you will be inducted, but into alternative civilian work. But by the time all of that happened, the, the, the draft system had a lottery system of which, who would be chosen when. And so in 1972, my lottery number was such that they would have drafted me into alternative civilian work after July 20th, when I turned 26. But the military and selective service system was not drafting anybody after age 26. So what kind of work would that have meant you? That most likely would have been going to Mendota Mill Hospital and being an orderly, mm -hmm. as one of my close friends at that time did. Uh, so I learned which sounds so simple now, that the United States and the Kingdom of God are not quite as close together as I thought they were. And so the flag and the cross are not wrapped together mm -hmm. the way that um, growing up in the 50s down south, that's pretty much what everybody thought. So was your, was your the belief you came to about being a conscientious objector, if the way you described it was fairly intuitive, like Jesus died for me, I probably shouldn't be killing, as opposed to like a more formal or like being part of a denomination that taught nonviolence. Uh, right. Methodist Church does not teach that. As far as I know, it's the Quakers, the Amish, and the Mennonites, the peace churches. Mm -hmm. um, um, yeah, you could say it was just intuitive in my own um, reading in the scripture. Now, I read in the scripture a lot. Uh, Probably those days, I imagine I read you know, 45 minutes a day, every day, uh, and I'm a fast reader. Uh, and I was reading the whole Bible, so there's, you know, emphasizing the New Testament and especially emphasizing the Gospels, mm -hmm. uh, and then other parts less. But every, every part of the Bible I was reading at least once a year, uh, and the important parts, or the more important parts, uh, more, much more often than that. Uh, and I, that's just the impression I came to. Um, mm -hmm. But I always wondered, well, was I just a young fool? Because what I imagined was, suppose I was sitting on the white cliffs of Dover in 1943, and the Germans actually did come across the English Channel, and I was English. Because mm -hmm. that's the way the United States wanted me to, to have to think about it. You know, right. it the, 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 our country did not recognize conscientious objection to a specific war. You had to be conscientiously opposed to every war. Every war. And um, there are some wars that it would be very difficult to not ob to object to, they, unless you absolutely... Right, and so that's why I always wrestle with, well, was I just uh, either a coward or a hypocrite or the bravest young man I've ever met? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Do you still hold the same view? Are you conscientious, conscientious objector to this day? Uh, or now that you're over 26, you've retired uh, from such contemplation? I, I think, well, putting it in political terms, there's precious few military actions the United States has gotten into since Vietnam that come even close to having the virtue of World War II. Yeah. Uh, they all more seem like Vietnam all over again, or the British Empire all over again. Um, mm -hmm. And so, um, that's yeah, fine. there's principles, people on all sides of that issue.
Yeah. Diane, so you guys were married during this time? Yes. So did you encourage him down these lines? Did you... What, what was this like for you? Like, well, it was a big thing for me because I'd never really thought of being that way. Mm -hmm. But um, I wanted to back him with any way he could. One uh, real interesting thing was that we had some Christian friends and when mm -hmm. he was not being uh, acknowledged and we knew he might be put in jail and he would be put in prison in... Uh, Pennsylvania, and some friends, Christian friends of ours in Washington, D.C., said, we want you to come and live with us when he's there. And I was just so blessed that somebody just opened it up for me. They were very impressed that when he found out he might have to go to prison, he still stood firm. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing, you know, you don't, you're not just saying it because you're a chicken. And like his father told him, well, you know, believe what you want to believe, but don't go to jail for it. Mm -hmm. So it's you know we we want our convictions to be real and to stand on them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's important for Christians to recognize that there are numerous biblical passages in the New Testament that assume Christians can go to jail mm -hmm. for their beliefs mm -hmm. entirely honorably. In fact, one I know I think it was I can't remember which scholar it is now from that was at Trinity when I was there. He he believed that um, the visiting passages that in Matthew 25, when it says, when I was in prison, you visited me, that the context of that assumes this is a Christian brother, that you that, that a Christian has been imprisoned for their faith, and you took the time and effort to go visit them. It didn't mean you had a prison ministry. Yeah. And the same thing in Hebrews, that when it speaks of people visiting those who have been imprisoned, it doesn't mean, like, they caught you with nine pounds of cocaine, and I've been nice enough to come visit you. It means... You stood for your faith and were put in prison. And that's a pretty plausible... Now, people who do prison ministry don't like that interpretation. But as far as I can tell, it's the right one in mm -hmm. most cases mm -hmm. because it's assumed all through the Bible that you could get imprisoned for standing firm for your faith, mm -hmm. whether it's for this or whether it's... But in every case, right, if you're in prison, it's because the state has put you there. So if you can be imprisoned for your faith, it's because you have offended the state somehow. It's a political issue. Yeah. All right. So um, you talk. You guys get to talk a little bit about adoption in the, the Sunday morning stuff, but not a ton. Um, is there any some stuff about that you want to say that you don't? You're not going to get to say on Sunday morning. Obviously, you adopted two children from Brazil. Two from Brazil. But before that, if I were teasing you, I'd say we adopted one Deloitian as well, yeah. which means he was born in Deloitte. <laughs> Some okay. people think Deloitians are people in Southeast Asia. <laughs> yeah. So you've got three children. Yes. Three One children. from Beloit. At six weeks old. Okay. Uh, we got the notice from Catholic Social Service that he, he was now cleared to be picked up on a Thursday. And Diane called me at work and said, Woo, let's go get him on Monday. And I said, no, let's get him tomorrow. <laughs> and so we did. Um, and they called us six, nine months after we had applied. So that was special to me. We oh. got a child after nine months. Yeah. yeah. So in some sense, that was the easiest labor on record. Yeah. <laughs> and then somehow you got involved in adopting children from Brazil, which is not normal. Like when you think of like parent, American parents adopting kids, they don't think, oh, yeah, probably from Brazil. It was very irregular. Um, so when Samuel, whom we adopted six weeks, um, was about two years old, we thought, well, let's see if we can adopt some more. So I made some phone calls. I called Catholic Social Service. I called Lutheran Social Service. And then there's a, at that time, there was another statewide agency, which, whose name I don't remember, so I'll just call it Secular Social Service. It wasn't a, chur <laughs> it wasn't a church. It was yeah. something. And all three of them said, well, we don't really have healthy white infants, but if you're willing to take a child with about three or four terrible medical conditions, we've got plenty of them. And so my immediate thought was, oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but I don't really believe that verse means that I can do what I can't do. But, and so I had to wrestle through that. Uh, <clears throat> so then we began to look for foreign adoptions, thinking, well, um, what, what's out there? And most of them, either did not respond to our letters, I think this is pretty much before the internet, um, like 1980 or 81, 
or they had their list of adoptive parents was full and they didn't need any more, or they wanted us to be much more wealthy than we were. So that was discouraging. And then we finally read an article about a, a new agency that was operating in Colombia, South America. And, oh, and then it turned out they only wanted, well, their main requirement was that you be in a practicing Christian home and that your health insurance would cover adopted children. And since I worked for the state, the, uh, if we adopted the child on my health insurance, which the state provided, uh, it would cover the child as if he was natural born. Um, so that was great. And then things changed. Uh, we thought we would adopt one healthy infant from Columbia. And then we got a phone call. Well, let me step back. Uh, <clears throat> they wanted us to be a practicing Christian home. Um, and so the only problem with that was that they wanted a recommendation from our pastor. And at that point, we did not have a pastor because we were leading three Bible studies a week here in Wisconsin, in Madison. <clears throat> and we had some really close Christian friends in Northern Virginia. So they were kind of our fellowship, primary fellowship, uh, but no official pastor. So they said, well, would you write out a statement of faith? Were so, you, so you weren't going to Sunday worship anyway? No, at that point. We had been in the Methodist church, and we eventually left that. And then we had been in a church that was kind of like a combination of Campus Crusade-like group and being a local church. So their elders were all in their mid-20s. Uh, then we left that after a while. Uh, and I'm not sure if we had gotten into the Reformed Church by then or not. Uh, so I wrote out a doctrinal statement, which we have lost, but... The part I do remember is I described what Diane and Samuel were doing while uh, I was writing out the statement. Uh, Diane was on her hands and knees over top of Samuel, and then he said, Father in heaven, spit me out. And then Diane leans backwards, so she's vertical now, but on her knees. And he gets up, runs down the hall, and says, Repent, God is good. And so then I say, as you can see, as you're reading what I'm writing, uh, they were doing the story of Jonah and the great fish, and Samuel was Jonah uh, from a two-year-old's perspective. Um, <clears throat> so we were accepted, and so then we thought, well, we'll adopt this healthy white child from Columbia. And then we get a phone call, and the lady says, I'm the Brazilian coordinator of SAME, the adoption agency, which was South America Missionary Evangelism. Uh, would you consider something from Brazil? Okay, and then that something turned out to be two rather than one, and then older than infants rather than infant, and then also not totally healthy rather than healthy. And they also were black, which then presented a situation for us in that we grew up down south and segregated south. and so. But we also sang a song, a hymn, many Sundays, you know, join hands and brothers of the faith, whatever your race may be, who serves my father as a son is surely kin to me. So do we believe that? And the answer was, yes, we do. Uh, but we had, to, we had to realize that. Uh, but before we made the final decision, half of our really close friends thought, this is great, go for it. And the other half thought, oh, I don't know. One, you're not that great a dad anyway, maybe. And then what are you doing adopting black kids? This, the society isn't going to like it, even if it's okay with you. Uh, so it wasn't the objection wasn't, you can't give these kids an appropriately black experience, which is sort of the objection well, today. That's it, a, was, it was like, they're black. What are you doing? Yeah, our from black our friends. Our friends did say that. Yeah. Yeah, but they weren't. You know, they said that's something to consider and strongly consider. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I don't think, um, I didn't think it was that big a deal because yeah. I was just blissfully ignorant. Right. Um, As though black Brazilian and black American are exactly the same somehow. Uh, and my thinking at that point, which was totally shallow, uh, black everything was the same. Yeah. Uh, I've realized. So did you? Okay. So I'm assuming from the way you described this that you did feel residual cultural feelings of prejudice. Well, as I, part of your life, I think I will always worry about how much glop from my beginning is still there. So for example, when John Kennedy was assassinated, I was 17 years old. 
senior in high school. The principal of the school had no experience giving traumatic messages across the PA system, and so he didn't do very well this first time. He just came on the PA and said, the president has been shot. He didn't say, students and teachers, I have something terrible to tell you. Mm -hmm. The president has been shot. So that was the first thing. And the second thing, from one of the class, at least one of the classrooms down the hall came cheers. Now this is all white high school. There's another high school nearby that's all black, the same size. Um, so that's the glop. Now I got home. My mother, who never watched TV in the afternoon, was watching TV and weeping. So both of those are inside of me. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of the question about adopting black children is, how much am I like Rosa Parks and how much am I like Governor Wallace? And can I get the Governor Wallace part out of me? You know, that's the way he's remembered. Mm -hmm. uh, now, in his behalf, he did apparently repent near the end of his life and was very different, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but he represents that part of the white South that's terrible. Yeah. So, I mean, I know well enough to know that you said yes. Yes, we did. And it's great. And one effect of it is as time went on, uh, I would find myself greeting black people on the street just very um, easily. And then they, of course, not knowing anything about where I'm coming from, were somewhat surprised. Mm -hmm. um, and then one funny experience we had, we're in a group called Mennonite Your Way, which is basically a bed and breakfast group that's mostly Mennonites. And so we stayed with this Mennonite family in northern Indiana one time, when our children are now like five, five, and four. Uh, and they were a classic uh, northern European, blonde, blue-eyed parents and children, stair-step children. Uh, and I just had this little uneasy feeling that although these folks are really nice, there's something wrong with them. But it was kind of in the back of my mind. And as we were driving home from there the next day from Indiana, I realized what it was. They all looked alike. And that was strange. Yeah. And I thought, that's wonderful. I think that's strange. <laughs> yeah. Because that made my whole viewpoint had changed. And so I thought we were normal. <laughs> Diane, so how, what was it like for you? Did you have, I mean, did you struggle with prejudice stuff when that happened? Or did you just like mentally go, well, I either believe this or I don't? Or what was that like? Or were you just like, listen, I'll take any kids you'll give me. Like, I. Yeah, I was I was very happy to, to take any kids they gave us. Uh, I, it was an adjustment because you go into the room at night to see them and you couldn't find them unless they opened their eyes and you saw the white of their eyes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was that kind of adjustment. Yeah. I, I, but as time went on, I could see them blush. Mm -hmm. At first, I couldn't. I mean, there's a, such a getting used to or how to deal with my daughter's hair. You know, it's so kinky. Yeah. What do you do? And uh, so it, it, but it, it just opened up a whole new world. I mean, we experienced uh, things we would have never experienced by having black children mm -hmm. and getting involved oh. in what they had to go through and things that neighborhood kids call them or so forth. Mm -hmm. And then all the parasites they had, uh, it, that was a big deal. And the Lord even used that. I mean, we were just, I was having to scrub the bathroom three times a day and everything so we wouldn't all get these. It just had a long list of parasites and... Um, one time, this big parasite came out, and it was just, I wanted to scream and run, and uh, I, I just cried out to God. I said, yes, I left heaven to come down and take on your guilt, your sins, your parasites and everything. Mm -hmm. Just remember that. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, after that, I felt it was an honor to clean those bathrooms and take care of the children with their parasites. And if I got them, I got them. I was going to take care of them. So, you know, God uses lessons. It just taught us so much and to see um, how, I mean, I found out sometimes the neighborhood's kids would say, oh, you're black because you got poop all over you. And then they'd go play with them the next day. <laughs> and I'd say, how can you do that? And they said, oh, they didn't mean it. And I thought, wow, they're so quick to forgive. I wasn't that quick to forgive. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. I just... So many experiences I would have never experienced without them. It's been wonderful. Yeah. Okay, well, we've been talking for almost a half hour already. Um, let's, I want to talk about your house 
thing just because that is so strange to people. So one of the things that people don't probably don't know about Bill is that he has what might be considered idiosyncratic views to other people. Yeah, you know, he's just very direct, straightforward. Like, I think this, that's that's what I think, and that's what I'm... And so one of them is that going into debt isn't a good idea, even for a house. So you just decided to build one. Um, well, before that, I read passages about going into debt, and it seemed to me that that was not something that God wanted us to do. Therefore, we decided we would live in apartments the rest of our life because there was no way we could build a house because it cost money, right. plus knowing what you're doing. Uh, and had neither, or at least not much money, and I certainly didn't know how to build a house. Um, but in 1979, uh, one of our friends here uh, built their house. Uh, but that gentleman had a father who had built his house before electric tools existed, and then his brother taught agricultural engineering at the University of New Hampshire. So we have a handy friend, very competent father of the friend, and then a very competent brother of the friend. So those three masterminded and did the difficult part of building a house. And then I and oh, three or four of our mutual friends, again from Virginia, that same group that was our friends all along, uh, came and helped build their house. Near the end of that building is when we adopted Sam. And so one of our friends said, well, Bill, we'll come back next year and build your house. What do you think? And I said, <laughs> you've got to be kidding. Um, because you had just built the, this friend's house. I was just helping build. So like, for example, there was a place where we were needing all the studs for the, for the walls. And so you've got to cut two by fours that are, say, seven foot, 11 inches, 11 and one quarter inches long. So we, they set up a... Um, radial arm saw, and then I just cut one, cut another one, cut another one, cut another one. Just, uh, just the lowest level laborer on the project. Right. Because I told my friend Steve, I'm not here to learn how to build a house. I'm here to be as helpful as I can for you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, so then my friend who suggested that we would build a house said, "Well, what do you think it would take?" And I said, "Well, it would take money. It would take." Uh, labor and it would take knowledge and so we prayed and over the next winter Diane's mother totally not knowing anything about these conversations uh, had a certificate of deposit come mature and so she said I'd like to give you some money so you could build a house uh, so you could buy a house uh, well we had some money and then she had was giving us some money and that put it within the realm of maybe it's possible. And so, uh, with more discussion, um, we decided we would go ahead and, and start. And so one question was, well, would God have you start something if you couldn't finish it? Because there are some parables about that's not a good thing to do. And so Diane's spiritual mom said, well, if the Lord is actually leading you to start, it's okay if you don't finish because he'll have lessons for you whether you finish or you don't finish because he's, he works everything in a good way. So we started. Which sounds like really bad advice. It does sound like really bad advice, except <laughs> that lady had a tremendous wisdom. In her defense, though, the parable about counting the cost beforehand, which we'll get to in the fall, it's in Luke, right, hmm, okay. is about salvation. Right, it's like whether it's whether or not you're willing to believe in Jesus so enough to really be his disciple or not. It's not really about whether or not you should. The principle is there, though. Right now, we thought we had enough money to build a house to make it inhabitable, but not necessarily to finish it. Yeah. So that's the distinction. We get past the the building inspectors, um, and so the next step was then to go to the library. Now, I'm not mechanically inclined at all. I'm pretty good at crossword puzzles, uh, but that's not a very transferable skill. Uh, so you go to the library and you check out books on how to build a wood frame house. And in my case, I was also interested in making it energy efficient. So I checked out books along that line as well. Uh, and we had a gentleman from the University of Wisconsin Architecture Department, like the architecture for the university, not mm -hmm. an academic 
department, uh, drew up plans, said, this is what we want, and so he said, okay, I'll draw the plans. So he did. Uh, and then several of our friends from Virginia volunteered to come up, and so we had the earthwork, initial earthwork done before Labor Day of 1980, and then we had a kind of like a retreat over Labor Day weekend. Uh, one of our friends, I baptized one of our friends that weekend, uh, and then we started. Uh, and the lady who had given the advice about the Lord has the lessons to teach you had connected us with a contractor from near Pittsburgh who came up to work with us for a week saying that they need to get everything square to start with because if you don't start off square, you're doomed. Right. And so he came up and, he, and also his company, I think it's fairly small, they were roofing that week and he hated roofing. <laughs> so it was an escape for him too uh, but we had a wonderful time he was a Christian and so we had Bible studies at night and, and we got the uh, the framing but not the trusses for the first floor which is the top floor uh, up that week uh, we would have done trusses but it was just raining to beat the band the last day and so he got on the plane and left and then we did the trusses the next day or next Monday uh, and one of the fun adventures was uh, one friend said, oh, I'll work on the plumbing if you will work with me, if you, Bill, will work with me. And so we did. And so the first part of that is digging the trench in the undisturbed earth since Noah's flood or sometime uh, with rocky ground from where the, the one wall of plumbing is. Every, all of our plumbing is in one wall and you either access it from one side or the other. It's a straight line. And then there's a line that goes out to the septic field. And so we dug the trench out that way. And then we went to what was then Fish Building Supply and discovered you can't just find uh, plumbing corners, uh, the pipe the corners that set certain angle, like 90 degrees off of straight ahead, 45 degrees off of straight ahead, and 22 and a half degrees off of straight ahead. And the ditch we had dug was none of those. <laughs> So we have a geometry problem here. And so what we did was use an angle and go a ways, then, then use another angle and cut back towards the other side. It's like we were drunk driving down this ditch. A uh, little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right. Uh, now one of the sports in our neighborhood is going over to a house under construction and seeing how it's going every night while the workers are gone. And so some of our neighbors did that, and so they complained to the town of Middleton building inspector who came out and said, your neighbors are complaining, I'm going to have to have you have a real plumber do this. I told you you could do it yourself because it's your house, but I, if people are complaining, I can't let you do that. So we found a plumber who was a Christian man, and he came out and looked at it and raised his eyebrows quite a ways. And then he said, Bill, did you know that plumbing is a geometric science? And in particular, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And all, well, Diane was out there and all of her friends who were helping were there. And they were all holding their collected breaths, wondering if I would explode at him because I knew more mathematics in my little finger than he ever knew uh, because I was a math major and had a master's degree in mathematics. Uh, but I just said, yes, sir. <laughs> and what I did not say was what you told me is true in Euclidean three space, but in the geometry we were dealing with was rocky ground. The minimum amount of digging, again, is the, the shortest distance between two points. But we had the slope correctly, and there's been no problem with the plumbing that way at all. Uh, but that was the moment. Uh, which now I think it was quite funny, but at the moment it was it was tense. So you so you did finish the house though. We did finish the house. It's still standing. Um, so how like how much did it cost to build a house relative to like buying one? If you well, bought the, one in those days, is, it would have been. Well, this is 1980. I don't. I we put approximately sixty thousand dollars into the house. It's the assessor nowadays, you know, for taxes purposes. Oh, I think rates it at like 220000 or 250000 or something like that. Yeah. So but that was less, $60,000 was less, much less than you would have had to buy a house for in those days? 
Yes, because all the labor was free, basically. Mm -hmm. Well, not all the labor. The earthwork was done by contractors, and the oh, and the cement concrete work was done by contractors. Yeah, that's probably. But smart. we did all the carpentry and all the half of the plumbing and all of the wiring was done by free labor. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was considerably cheaper than um, buying a house. So we had looked, for example, houses, I think it's Rosa Road, uh, that are kind of junky looking, and we maybe could have bought one of those, but we really didn't like it. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're much happier with what we have now. Yeah. Um, because it's, when it's out in the country, it's got a little bit of land with it. And then it's a passive solar house that's super well insulated. So if indeed, um, Madison Gas and Electric went out of commission and we couldn't get natural gas to heat the house. We could live through the, the winter without heat, bought heat at all. We did one winter uh, when our children were, I think, six, six, and five. Uh, we went off for a Bible conference uh, after Christmas, came back like 13 days later, and the temperature in the middle of the house had dropped to 53 which considering Wisconsin, an uh, unheated house for nearly two weeks, only dropped to 53. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, that was wonderful. And so then we lived in the house, the five of us, and it went up a degree or two every day until the sun finally came back out, and then it popped up into the mid-60s, which is very comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, so we like our house quite a lot. But it's, it's definitely a gift from the Lord because we thought we'd live in apartments the rest of our life. Mm -hmm. uh, and... We certainly never dreamed that, that I would be the general contractor building a house. So really, I say my friends built it while I fretted over how to build it. <laughs> so, okay, so um, not everybody holds those exact convictions, right? right. And yep. I don't think you believe that every Christian who's ever been in debt in any way has sinned, but that like the Bible seems to say that going into debt for most of the reasons, at least, that humans do so is foolish. So, okay, but, but the thing that I think everybody would probably unconditionally admire if they're Christians is that you've been married 50 years. And that, Diane, yes. you've been married to no. a very convictional person for 50 years, which is a, probably both a blessing and a hardship in a way. So, you know, it's yes. kind of like, yeah. So, um, so, so, um, what what would you tell? So we live in a time where people think that that's that's not common, right? Now it's probably because we get married, we're getting married later, and so hmm. people just don't have fifty years to burn with each other, right? But part of it is just people don't stay married, and yeah. so what 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 could you tell them from your considerable experience about even maybe some some of the things, maybe some of those years were even happy years. So what would you like? What would you tell people about about how, you, how about how, especially how growing as a disciple or becoming a substantive disciple of Christ affects that or whatever you want to say? Well, we both love the Lord and want Him to be first in our life, and we're committed to that, and that's where we get our joy from. And so we've been very active in Christian groups and in churches all of our life. And that has helped a lot. And we believe that marriage is something you have to work at. It doesn't just happen. Mm -hmm. So going to you know seminars on that to work on and getting ideas on that mm -hmm. and putting it into effect. We have, uh, we have a lot of disagreements but then we can talk through them, and um, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we'll <laughs> put our paws up and bite, which changes a very horrible thing into a humorous thing, and it, it helps. We've got some little skills that have helped us through mm -hmm. uh, differences. Uh, I think the hardest time when we had was when we were raising three children, and uh, neither one of us had a lot of experience. But Bill, being a single child. Mm -hmm. had less experience, and that was really the harder mm -hmm. time. And so we had to depend on uh, the Lord a lot and forgive each other a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, he, he's very um, strong-headed, and I can be very strong-headed, too. 
but, but <laughs> what does God say? You know, that's, that's the bottom line in so many things. What does God want us to do? And he wants us to love one another and forgive one another. Mm-hmm. And we have to learn to do that. I think praying together, uh, praying together every, we, we tried every night or every morning, and that has made a difference. I remember one day when I was just, I was really down on Bill. He was just being terrible, and I was so negative. And then that night when it, he started praying, I just melted. <laughs> I saw this godly man that was praying a wonderful prayer. And I've changed from being so negative about him to just respecting and loving him more. Mm-hmm. And we have to see and be flexible on those things. And and then I don't need to tell him when I, you know, all negative about him. Learn to keep some things in. <laughs> <laughs> so like being fully authentic and saying everything is probably not a good way to live. Right. No. Yeah. No. Um, you know, there's two other things I would point to. One we were virgins when we married, mm-hmm. um, and we actually verified that before we married, uh, which is always frightening, but then what if one of us isn't? Uh, but then we also believe that marriage is an earthly picture of Jesus and the church, and so therefore divorce is not an option. Uh, um, there's a song we came across many years later called The Ships Are Burning by Stephen Annie Chapman, where they use the example of, I believe it was Pizarro, one of the Spanish conquistadors who sailed to Mexico from Spain, and he was going to have reinforcements coming the next year. But his plan was they were going to march to what now is Mexico City with their guns and overtake the Aztec Empire. So the first thing they did... Yeah, with only like 430... I think it was Cortez. I oh, think it was only, Cortez. With only 430 was. soldiers. Yeah, Pizarro went to Peru, I think. But anyway, that, yeah. that guy. So they unload the ship, or ships, and there's still only 400 of them, and there's thousands of Aztecs, mm-hmm. and they burned the ships. So their men knew they were committed. Right. Your forward is the only way out. Mexico City or die. Or die. You can try to swim back to Spain, but... <laughs> You won't make it to Cuba. I'm not going to make it, yeah. And so that's... That was your that's attitude. Our, that's our attitude, is we're stuck with each other. But we're happy, and, but that makes it possible for us to put our full effort into learning to live with each other because we're, as I like to say, marriage is the only human institution built on the foundation of irreconcilable differences. <laughs> and, and, and so, Meaning a man and a woman. A man and a woman. <laughs> who are both sinners. Who are both sinners. Yeah. And so then there's another uh, actual verse that says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. But if the Lord does build the house, then, and then it's not labor in vain. And so there have been, as you would say, 49 happy years in our 49 years of marriage. And as of tomorrow, there'll be 50 happy years. Not that everything's been totally peaches and cream. but. Yeah. I think Lexi and I joke that like I mean at least a third of ours have been happy. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, you've got to do that. You get some good yeah. years. But I, I, we first got married. We just were displeased with each other greatly. And as long as you sit around and you nurse even the fantasy of leaving oh, or yes. them being a different person or whatever, you just mm. never get on with sorting things out. Right, and it yes. just things just get worse and worse and worse. And if you just go look, I don't have any other options. This is my wife. I'm gonna have to learn to love her, <laughs> and she's gonna have to learn to love me. We got to sort this out. It's like it's if you have other options, the yes. the power of the focus of one option completely yeah. transforms human motivation. Yes, and people don't understand that. And I think exactly. That, I think when you understand that and you've lived through it you begin to see the wisdom of Jesus being so hard about divorce. He's so hard about divorce. But when you get to 50 years and you're like, well, it was really helpful, actually. Yes, it it was. (laughs) Yeah, it makes it a little different. Um, Why don't you say a little bit, both of you have taught and stuff on just having a personal devotional life. Um, Now, hopefully you wouldn't advertise that you weren't in corporate worships at certain points in your Christian life. But one thing you have been strong on all the way through your Christian life is personal worship, reading the Bible, prayer. Say a little bit about having a long practice of 
at? Well, I date my conversion back to when I actually began to read the Bible every day and continued and never stopped. I had started reading the Bible in high school, crashed and burned in Leviticus, and then I read the Bible as a freshman. In there college. are many plains in that desert. <laughs> they will be. I know mine was hit it, hit it hard. Uh, and then as a freshman, I studied the Bible as an Old Testament, New Testament survey, but then put the Bible down again. But I began to read the Bible as a, as a junior, and it was tasty. I liked it. And, and so my college roommate, um, who was much wiser than I, said, well, Bill, you've got to have a, a method that is sustainable and encouraging to keep your uh, reading in a good way. So the short version of it is read the New Testament with more emphasis than the Old Testament. And then, unlike many people, read the Gospels more than the rest of the New Testament. Some people say you should read the letters more. But Greg said, well, the big revelation about God is that he became a man in order for us to understand him and for him to be our redeemer. And so reading about the man is more important than reading about um, various doctrines. Not that the doctrines are not important, but make that choice. Um, and so that's the choice I've made. Uh, and then ultimately I divided the Old Testament into four portions and I read the portion I read the least, at least once a year. The portions I read the most in the New Testament, I read a lot. Uh, but mm -hmm. I'm a, a very fast, strong reader. And so one of the troubles I've had to have is becoming so familiar, for example, the New American Standard Translation, which we read for decades, that we thought, I've got to switch to another translation. So I did. And then I've switched to another one, and then to another one, uh, to keep them fresh. Um, because one of the things I have to battle is being a Pharisee, that I know everything, but I'm not doing it. Um, yeah. So, Diane, before you answer that question, um, just for the listeners, um, now I would not go as far with Bill as to, as to split up the Old Testament with emphasis quite that way, but I do think for people first reading the Bible, spending more time in the New Testament is important. Mm -hmm. it, it, is. It, is, it is a new covenant, and that is the area of emphasis I think Christians should focus on. The Old Testament gives you the background of the New. You can't really understand the New Testament in its fullness without knowledge of the Old Testament. And so it's very important to read the Old Testament. And you can find the Gospel in the Old Testament. But we are a New Testament people. And so reading the New Testament more, especially early on, I think is important. So I, th I do think that's, that's very valid. But, but I think the thing I want to emphasize as a pastor is it is more the long practice of reading the Bible that produces the kind of discipleship we're talking about more than any particular plan or belief mm -hmm. of like what yes. is more important than what else. Mm -hmm. Reading the Bible and reading it over and over again and not thinking because you've read it through a couple of times, you know it and that's it. Mm -hmm. And to continually find newness in it. And if you don't, switch translations, um, but read the Bible and have private worship and prayer is produces great dividends. There's a pastor I know in town who says, whenever he sits down with Christians to do marriage counseling, he says, okay, before we talk about anything, we don't even know if we have a problem until we know whether or not you're reading your Bible every day and praying every day. Are you doing that? And if they say no, then he says, well, we don't even know if we have a problem yet then. Because I know you're not in a spiritual place to deal with the normal problems that come up in married life. So let's start with that. And of course he counsels them too, but he's making a point, which I think can be a good one. So Diane, what would you say? I would say that I just know that God is the only person that doesn't disappoint me. I mean, Bill disappoints me. God never does. And uh, I was asked one time, what's your favorite place in the house or favorite thing? And when I thought about it, I thought, it's my quiet time. And I just, I don't stop to think, am I going to read the Bible today? I just, it's a habit. I mean, I want to do it. And I um, I was so set on it and maybe a little more, a little too rigid when I had a ba when we adopted our first child, but he would wake up in the middle of the night, and I'd say, "Well, I'm going to feed him, and I'm going to read the Bible." <laughs> and then he would come crawling around, and he he want to bang on my Bible. This is my Bible. I'm reading my Bible. Well, it ended up his first word was Bible, <laughs> <laughs> because I was always talking about it. But uh, you know, I just I am so refreshed and helped in a 
I find it so living and active in that when I read it, I get new things out of it. God speaks to me. He tells me, gives me much more wisdom and understanding through his Bible. And I still am so excited about it in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, every morning I'm, I'm fed mm-hmm. and I commune with him and I um, am blessed by him and it's so glad I'm a Christian and I'm his. And he's so mine. even when you had three little kids? Yeah, I read you, it every day. Every day. How did you pull that off? Because um, some I've heard moms be like, well, I have children and they have to be fed and I couldn't possibly and I'm so tired. So well, how that's you... where I get up before they do. I get up early in the morning. We'd get up at like six, and I would read the Bible. And if they weren't up or something, I needed to take a nap. But I, I like to spend an hour every day. Now, when I had children, I didn't get to spend a whole hour. Okay, I'm going to take a wild guess about something in your life that I don't know the answer to, but I think I know the answer to. I'm going to guess that after you put your kids to bed at night, you didn't stay up until 11.30 watching television. That's for sure. No. Yes, we didn't even have a television until the kids became teenagers. Yeah. So you went to bed at a decent hour, yes. and then you woke up easily an hour before yes. them, yes. and then you read the Bible. Right. So yeah, I have, my first pastor said, television is the thief who steals from the next day. Nice. Yeah, disciplined disciples yeah. are the Lord's delight. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we need to be disciplined, or we're yeah. not going to do, we can't accomplish a lot of the things we want. Yeah. And it makes a big difference. I mean, I think sleep is so important in dealing with the kids. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. yes. And I'd rather be reading my Bible than watching a lot of things on TV. Yeah. But I, I mean, TV's not horrible. I think some things I can enjoy on TV. But yeah. we were happy without TV. And yeah. we had more family time with the kids because we didn't have TV until they started going other places for it. So we got one yeah. <laughs> to keep them home. Yeah. 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 All right. Any final words to people about... Um. Being married for 50 years is a little bit like eating an elephant. You just do one bite at a time and keep going. Okay. And it's wonderful. We have three people coming who are at, either in or at our wedding, and then a husband of one of those. But two of those three people are widows. So it's not automatic that you're going to make 50 years, even if you do yeah. uh, remain faithful. So it's a wonderful blessing. Uh, and for me, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful blessing to be married to her because other than my becoming a Christian, the best thing that ever happened to me was marrying Diane. It's something I'm very grateful for, the Lord giving us this and the lessons he's taught us. And, you know, he teaches us through the good times. He teaches us during the bad times. times. And, you know, sometimes I'm stronger for the Lord because of the problems we've had mm-hmm. because I've had to cry out to God. And you know, if Bill was mm-hmm. perfect, I wouldn't have had to. Would you better do it? Yeah, I feel like Alexi's grown a lot. <laughs> yeah. And so, yes. you know, you keep that as a good thing. You keep in mind the, the good things. And gratitude is healing. Um, just to be an uh, encouragement to other people and to have the scriptures there in your mind that you can share with people. It is living and active and sharper than it is. any two-edged sword. And you guys both said a lot about forgiveness, too. Yes. That actively yes. forgiving is mm-hmm. huge. Yes. Yeah. Well, you guys, I'm so excited for Sunday. I'm going to be in Utah trying to have, pull off a 50-year marriage myself. Um, but I hopefully the people are going to be really blessed on Sunday. People who hear this hopefully get to hear a little bit more. But it's, so, it's such a blessing. I want to say this on behalf of the church. It's such a blessing to have people in our church who have been married 50 years. For, for people to look out and say, Hey, those they've been married fifty years. You know the Sherbecks, they've been married sixty, 60 years. Yes. You know, and I'm hoping to interview them soon too. Yeah. But there was a, a woman who goes to High Point, and she was doing some work just downtown Madison with a bunch of younger people from like a more urban kind of background, mm-hmm. and they found out that she'd been married twenty five years, right? And they mm-hmm. and the the girls said to the same man, <laughs> and she said, "Well, yeah." And they said, "We don't know." anyone who's been married 25 so they, i mean there are kids that just don't yes. they've never even heard of anyone who'd been married 25 years and we have mm-hmm. multiple couples and families in our church who've been married 50 or more years it's such a blessing people don't even it's hard sometimes they don't recognize that but if you're a younger person in your 20s or 30s or 40s and um i want you to realize 
and be thankful that there are people around you that have been married 40, 50, and 60 years and that you know it's possible because they existed. They're right there next to you in the pew. So thanks, thanks so much, guys, and hopefully we can do this in 10 more years and you'll have learned new lessons and we'll see. Thank you. Wonderful. Yeah. All right. See you next time. Thank you.